Welcome to the Human Performance Podcast. Here we talk about everything to do with human performance and how leaders and organizations can get the best out of themselves and their people. I'm your host, Alex Young. My guest on the podcast this week is Pandit Daza. Pandit is a mindful leadership expert who's spoken on mindful leadership and conducted workshops at Google, JP Morgan Chase, City State Farm, Bank of America, Novartis, and multiple other Fortune 500 companies. Pandit's also presented at the World Government Summit in Dubai. And at these workshops, Pandit presents the research on mindfulness and explains the importance of leading by example, appreciation, communicating mindfully, and managing one's emotions. Hi, Pandit. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Alex. Thank you for having me on as your guest. Well, I'm very excited to speak to you because your background, your keynote speeches and your books are something very close to my heart, which is all about how we can get the most out of our minds, use mindfulness, optimize our sleep, which I've done a few videos and talks about myself on. Um, But rather than me going into anything specific straight away, it'd be great if you could just introduce yourself to everybody listening or watching uh, to give an overview about your amazing journey and your background. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I grew up in Southern California in Los Angeles. My, my parents had migrated from India to the U.S. in 1980, and they came over with little to no money. And so it was very simple, very humble beginnings. And I grew up, you know, initially my parents, in, they set up a small shop on Venice Beach, California for, I don't know if you've been there or not, who's been there. It's a pretty interesting and fun place to visit at least, uh, maybe even to live. <laughs> and they were working seven days a week with a, they had a small shop and they were just selling gift items. And within a matter of seven to eight years, they actually established a multi-million dollar jewelry business. So obviously that came with a lot of hard work and also luck, I think, good karma, <laughs> because I think you need both to succeed in life. So they had that. And then we began living that American dream much faster than we expected to. And then in the early 1990s, my parents, the jewelry business actually burnt down and we lost everything. We went almost completely broke. And your know, life has its ups and downs. And this was a major down. <laughs> so and then at that time, my parents, my dad decided to explore new business opportunities in post-communist Bulgaria. And at that, yeah, that was, that was a, uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been an interesting journey to say the least. And so we pack up our bags and leave LA behind for good and end up in post-communist Bulgaria, a country where no one speaks English. <laughs> and when I, it's not an exaggeration because it had just come out of the communist regime. So English was not on the radar for people and everything on TV was in the Bulgarian and Russian language. Movie theaters had movies that were like several years old because I don't think American movies were allowed at that time. And so there was no internet. So you can imagine my life had come to a complete screeching halt, like complete halt. And at that time, going through all of this change and turbulence and lack of predictability and uncertainty, I was going through a lot, obviously. And that's when I actually turned to mindfulness to to cope with all the changes that I was going through and all the difficulties that I was experiencing at that time. And then we spent a couple of years there and came back to the US and my parents set up a small business, retail business in Manhattan, New York City. And then in 1999, 
I decided I needed to take a break from life, figure out what I really want to do, how I want to live. So I decided to go to India to live in a monastery in Mumbai, not with the idea of becoming a monk, just with the idea of spending time with monks, studying philosophy, practicing meditation, just clearing my head, figuring out what's just happened in the last eight years of my life. You know, we're waking up at four in the morning, we're sleeping on hardwood floors. No one has a mattress or a cushion or anything like that. Thin straw mats, that's it, you're sleeping on that. Tiny little closets everyone has, you know, one meter by one meter at the most. And we're waking up four in the morning, meditating for two, three hours a day, serving one another, serving the community. It was a life of, it was a communal living, life of simplicity, humility, and service. And somehow living in those sort of austere and difficult conditions, I felt like I found my calling and I fell in love with that lifestyle. I fell in love with the, the other monks. I came back to the U.S. and moved into a monastery in New York City, wanting to continue that experience. I'm like, wow, this was so amazing. Can I do the same thing in the U.S.? Because I don't know if I can fully live in India. It's a little uncomfortable for me. I've been too used to use the U.S. And so I'm living in a monastery on the Lower East Side of New York, which is surrounded by tattoo shops, nightclubs, bars, bus stations, subway stations, you name it. Just It's New York. Right across the street is a funeral home from us. <laughs> it's all on one block. You can get a bagel pizza, <laughs> go to a nightclub, and the funeral home at all at the same time if you want. <laughs> so I ended up spending, I thought I'd spend maybe six months in the New York monastery. I ended up spending 15 years of my life as a monk. That was until seven years ago. And during that time, I was doing a lot of lecturing and teaching to college students on mindfulness and school life balance, work life balance. Then seven years ago, I left the monastic life because I wanted to take this message and knowledge and wisdom to the corporate environment because the stress level in corporations when you're working nine to five or nine to nine or something in between there is tremendous. It's insane. And we don't know how to deal with it. We don't know how to find that balance. And so and how to deal with each other and not carry work stress home and home stress to work. So I left the monastic life seven years ago and I've been speaking in organizations around the world for the last seven years on just mindful leadership, mindful workplace culture, and mindfulness and resilience. So it's a little bit of my background on how I came to doing what I'm doing right now. It's an absolutely amazing backstory. And you've had such a, a mixed exposure to different you know, cultures, different areas of the world, different geographies, and, and really sort of different walks of life in, in many ways. For, for you, sort of when you were, you know, first started practicing mindfulness and, and then when you went um, to, to live, you know, as a monk in, in sort of a role of service, what to, to you would mindfulness really consist of? Because I think, you know, certainly in modern day society where we've got apps like Calm or Headspace and things like that, often people have sort of slightly different interpretations. So for, for you personally, what, what, what does mindfulness really, really mean? It means quite a few things. And I do think mindfulness is much bigger and broader than just meditation. That is one compo important component of mindfulness. Mindfulness is literally how thoughtful and conscious and aware we are of the things we're doing, our own speech, our own behavior, but even more important, our thought process. So mindfulness is something we carry throughout the day from here to here to here. Right? It's all of it. So if I'm driving and someone cuts me off and is rude to me, am I aware enough to not be rude back? 
am I enough, am I self-aware and composed enough to say that person's having a bad day and that's why they're responding like that? I don't need to allow myself to enter that space and react the way they just did. Or if a colleague speaks to us in an unpleasant way, do we respond in an equally unpleasant way or do we have the capacity and maturity to rise above that and respond in a more compassionate way, understanding that they're responding this way, not because of this particular situation, probably because of all the other stuff happening in their life. And so, of course, I do want to clarify, this is much easier said than done. And I also want to make sure I admit and acknowledge that I'm not on this platform all the time. I try to be as much as possible, but I think half the time I'm not, half the time I'll react. The other half the time I'm like, oh, wait, stop, stop, stop. Don't, don't, look, I teach this stuff. I got to be better at it. You know, so the great thing is when you teach it, it forces you to try and live it a little bit more. So for me, mindfulness is about not just reacting to others or if something doesn't go right the way we wanted it to go, whether it's a promotion we were waiting for or whether we had a certain game plan and it didn't work out or, or, or perhaps it's that we wanted someone to respond in a certain way and they didn't. We wanted their reciprocation because we did something for them and they didn't do it back. Whatever the situation is that we're able to see that situation as something meant for our growth, that, hey, this is how it was meant to be, even though I wanted it to be like this, but it happened like this. And maybe this is how it was really meant to be. And let me see why it happened this way. And how is this helping me more than if it had happened the way I wanted it to? So mindfulness is all about really adjusting our mindset, our frame of mind to our current reality and not just staying constantly wishing that things were, could have happened in a different way, but they didn't. And this is what's happening now. And I need to accept what's happening now and see how this is actually the most beneficial thing for me right now. And that sometimes like Steve Jobs said that you can only connect the dots looking back. You can't connect the dots looking forward. And sometimes we won't realize why things happen until maybe six months, a year or two years down the line. Like it took so many years for me to realize that, oh my gosh, actually losing everything in LA and going to Bulgaria was such a powerful thing for me. And then becoming a monk was like incredibly powerful for me. Like that's not the stuff I chose in my life. I thought I'd just be taking over my dad's business and living the LA life with pools and jacuzzis and having fun. That totally didn't happen that way. <laughs> that wasn't my part of my plan to be sleeping on a hardwood floor in India in a monastery and waking up at four in the morning. No, never would have been a part of my plan. But the way that transformed me was phenomenal. So I think mindfulness is about carrying how we carry ourselves, our attitude, our mindset throughout the day and try to bring our best self forward, even difficult situations. And even if we can't bring our best selves forward, at least later reflect back on our actions and see how we could have done differently and how we can try to do differently the next time. So it's not just about beating ourselves up if we don't behave the right way. We need to be compassionate with ourselves and realize, okay, I can do better next time and I'm going to, and in the meantime, I'm going to ask for forgiveness from whoever I offended or upset. It's really interesting that, that contrast of, as you say, kind of chasing that, you know, the Californian dream of, of growing a business. And, and I think, you know, obviously a lot of the people that, that you work with, and we'll touch on some of your, your keynotes and your work with some big organizations and your books in a second, but 
a lot of people who sort of sit in that realm of, of very kind of high performers, high achievers, people who are sort of chasing, you know, money or, or success in work, they derive sort of a lot of identity from that. And then, you know, c- contrast that to your experience of being in a monastery, uh, whether it's in, in India on hardwood floors or, or in New York, but very, very different. And, and very few people have that complete dichotomy of experiences. And so I, I was wondering if you just speak to, what you sort of learned about yourself in, in terms of, you know, life in general and what you perceived as, as valuable and, and, you know, perhaps even self-worth in, in those two very, very different environments. Well, one thing that I learned in the monastery, uh, which is very powerful, and I think it's a very relatable to those in the corporate environment, the corporate world. See, in, in the monastery, especially when I was in New York, because I was there for about 15 years you know, we had about 10 to 15 monks at different times. People would come and go. Some stay for six months, a year, two years, whatever, however long they felt inspired to stay. And everybody had a very different background, culturally, different upbringing. And people had different personalities and traits and characteristics, which, which is true for any group. You get 10 people in a room, they're all going to be very different. And what I learned was I, I'm the type of person that likes to sort of get things done. And I noticed that not all the monks had that uh, same sort of um, characteristic. <laughs> Even as a monk, I was like getting things done on time, quickly, as soon as possible, right away. <laughs> that was kind of my mood. And it's not like, as a, I mean, I still did my meditation, but, you know, we are who we are. That's how we're wired. And so what I noticed that in the beginning, I was placing a lot of those expectations on others. But then there were the others who were incredibly creative and very thoughtful and just like very introspective and reflective. And they had these amazing traits, which I didn't have. But then I was imposing my own traits upon them that, oh, they should be like this and they could be like this and they could be like this. But I'm like, well, I don't have the qualities that they have. And I wish I did. So then it, well, one of the biggest lessons for me, and I think for also those of us in working in a corporate environment, working in teams, is I really had to learn to accept people for who they were and how they are. I had to learn to accept and appreciate their talents and skills and what they brought to the table as opposed to making them like myself or wishing that they were more like me because I don't want the whole world to be like me. That's a really boring place. I think, right. I think I, I want people that are different than me because that makes it interesting, exciting. That's they, I, I, I learn and grow from their way of doing things and what they bring to the table. So and I think in, in a corporate environment. And that was, that was, I think one of my most powerful lessons living. And we were, you gotta remember, we didn't have our own rooms for the most part. I, I did cause I was there a little longer than others. So I kind of got my own room, but a lot of times we were just like all sleeping next to each other, sharing one or two bathrooms between 10, 15 people meditating next to each other. So if you had maybe a disagreement with one of the monks and you're sitting next to them meditating, that's a little hard meditation, you know, now, <laughs> but we had to learn to do that. And I think in an organization where some people are really, driven and very successful. They want everyone else to be that successful as well. They want everyone else to be that driven. But I think that is a very immature approach. It's almost like if we judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, we're going to be frustrated and we're going to make the fish feel very insecure about its abilities. Or if we judge a monkey by its ability to swim, we're going to give the monkey a serious complex, thinking like, my gosh, I'm useless. And our expectation is going to lead to only frustration. 
So what we have to realize that every single person has a strength. And as a leader, we have to help them find the thing that they're really great at as opposed to trying to mold them into something else. I think teaching people, encouraging people to do something a little different is good and fine. But not that you're forcing and imposing your will upon them to be like you. It, that is actually very, very immature and very detrimental for that whole environment and that person's relationship with the others. So I think just learning to value others in such a close setting. And, you know, again, we're sleeping in the same rooms. We're meditating together. We're sharing kitchen, bathroom, meditation space. Like we're sharing everything 24-7. So you really have to learn to appreciate what others are bringing to the table and not impose yourself upon them. So that, that way, that's sort of, I think, uh, the biggest correlation I make and what I learned from like speaking to corporations that and while, when I was living in the monastery. Really interesting. And it's one of the things that I had to sort of reflect on when I was scaling up my business to, you know, sort of 40 plus employees or whatever it was. And I think one of the best pieces of advice I was given was, you know, if you're founding a business or you're the CEO, or you're on the executive team, you can't expect your employees to be as passionate about your idea and, and, and what you're doing as you are. And you can't expect them to, you know, work weekends and, and all these other things if you're, you know, if, if that's kind of the way you're built. And a lot of it is about sort of, as you say, bringing out the best in other people while also managing your own expectations and not setting goals that are, you know, too high in terms of expectation for, for yourself or your team, which, which is, again, feeding back into what you're talking about mindfulness where you've got to be kind to yourself you've got to be accepting of of others while also that you know you're driving towards some of your company goals and things like that um in in terms of you know then translating some of the things that you learned specifically into the corporate sector i i, I know you've, you've written sort of a, a number of books and you, and you go in and sort of do coaching and, and work quite closely around leadership and and, and well-being in organizations you're listening to the Human Performance Podcast by Verti. If you're enjoying this episode, why not join our newsletter? When you sign up, you'll receive a copy of Level Up straight to your inbox every Thursday with the latest tips, tricks, and news about all things human performance. Head over to verti.com forward slash newsletter to sign up. That's verti.com forward slash newsletter. You can find this in the show notes. Anyway, back to the episode specifically on that coaching piece where do you start when you go into an organization and and i know that you've worked at some really big sort of fortune 100 fortune 500 companies where do you sort of go in to instill that kind of behavior change and and share some of your knowledge with them so i mean one of the first things uh, is me helping them understand the nature of their own mind i think that's where it all starts because if we're going to talk about mindfulness we have to talk about the mind and understand help people understand what the mind is and that most of our anxieties most of our misconceptions and misunderstandings that take place about in life and with each other all start in our mind <laughs> and one example i throw out there which people find interesting is that i asked them, like hey, have you ever had an argument with someone then later in the day you replay that whole argument back to yourself and, you know, people usually smile like, yeah, we've done that. And I'm like, yeah, is there any, is there, did anything positive come out of that? No, you just got more frustrated and angry for the whole second time now. Because <laughs> you literally made yourself live through that whole thing again. And, and I'm like, how many times has this happened where you've seen someone without knowing them, you formed an opinion about them? 
Like maybe you saw somebody eating a sandwich in a way, maybe that's, that was a little bit messy and you created a whole impression about that person based on the way they were eating their sandwich. Oh, this person's sloppy, must be lazy. You know, all kinds of like stuff that you put them in and people are like, yeah. And I'm like, well, now if you have a mind like that, can you really trust your mind? I can't, like when you're driving through the desert and you look in the distance, it's, you know, it's desert, but you see something that looks like water. You see like a, like a glimmer on the sand. It looks like it's water. And you're like, oh, that, that's water. But it's not. So our mind sees things that aren't there. It, it's, it is expert at misinterpreting. So one thing that I encourage is like, don't always trust your mind when it gives you an opinion based. That's not based on real knowledge and research and something that you've actually tried to experience. Until you know this person, don't judge them. Don't think you know them. Don't have any expectations of them until you get to know them. So that's where I start that, that mindfulness can help us close out the apps that are here because I compare the mind to a smart device. And I'm like, you know, if you have too many apps open on your smart device, it's going to drain your battery. It's going to drain the battery of the smartphone. It's going to slow it down. And that's what happens to us. So that's where I start. Help them understand that we have a mind. It's like a smart device. The mindfulness practices can help us close out the apps in our mind that we don't need because they're just draining our battery. And once we can become aware of what's going on in here, that's when we can start to sort of rectify our behavior and improve in the way we think and speak to others and behave with one another. So that's sort of the starting point. Because the starting point has to be self-awareness. If we're not aware of our thoughts and speech and behavior, then we won't improve it. Right? So it has to, the whole transformation process and mindfulness has to start with oneself. Because mindfulness means to look at yourself, to be able to look at yourself and understand who you are, what your triggers are, what makes you react. Really analyze those and then start to make an active endeavor to change and transform some of our own behaviors that we're, we, that we've come to realize aren't in our best interest. And that, that element of overthinking that affects, you know, all of us at, at some stage where our mind makes those connections and you start to focus down on one thing, perhaps more than you should. And it, it, it turns into a much bigger deal, perhaps than it is. Um, that obviously sort of inspired you to write your book about closing, uh, you know, your apps in, in your mind that's sort of aimed at employees that anyone can pick up. What, what were some of the sort of the things that you wanted to share when you started writing that book and, and, and what was your thought process behind it? Well, you know, one thing that was happening is after my lectures, people were constantly asking me, hey, are, do you have any, have you written about this? Do you have any articles on this? And I would say, yeah, kind of, not really. <laughs> and at one point, I'm like, okay, people are asking for more, and I just need to give them something. So when I walk away after a one-hour lecture, how much are they going to remember? They'll remember maybe one or two things. You know, we have so much going on in our life. Like, it's just like, well, one thing after another, right? It's, you're not going to remember. So ultimately I'm like, okay, I think I just need to put something down on paper so that I can let people see it and really read it at their own time. So I wrote it, you know, this the book on uh, closing the apps, how to be mindful 
at work and at home. And it's and even the picture is kind of like there where it's like the, the mind is open and all these apps are floating out of the mind and we're trying to like close some of them out because we don't need all of them open all the time. <laughs> right. So, and so and that was kind of the reason that people would have a nice follow-up tool. Cause I've got even writing exercises in the back of each chapter to help them reflect on their own behavior, what makes them tick. Um, and so another exercise I have in there is on appreciation because one of the things I do talk about in an organization is how do you, on a regular basis, appreciate your colleagues. And appreciation is something that, of course, leaders need to do. That's very important. I think that's one of the most important things that a leader can do, a manager can do, is appreciate their colleagues and, and the workforce and the direct reports. And also just like really being able to appreciate specifically. So one of the exercises I have in here is how do you feel when you're not appreciated at work? And when I ask that question during my speeches, people give them amazingly powerful responses, like unmotivated, discouraged, wanted to switch jobs, like all kinds of things people start saying in those, um, when I asked that question. So I kind of uh, made that an exercise in the book, also just writing down, how do you feel? And how do you feel when you are appreciated? And how often do we appreciate others? Yet we know that we're not getting appreciated as much as we want to, and we probably can remember all the times people should have appreciated us and didn't. But now let's switch it around. How often are we are appreciating others? Are there people in our life that are expecting appreciation from us and we've fallen short severely? So instead of thinking of what others haven't done, why not think about what I'm doing and what I haven't done and what I could do better? Because I think that's the much, much better and more powerful approach to improving ourselves and experiencing personal and professional growth. Because it's easy to look at what others are or aren't doing. Easy, because they're in front of us. What we can't look at is ourselves, because there's not a constant a mirror in front of us. So we have to put that mirror up in front of ourselves. So just sort of having you know, a follow-up tool and giving people a chance to reflect deeply is some of the motivations I had behind writing this so that people could have a tool after they've heard my talk or just curious to know more, go deeper in the stuff that I talked about, that gives them an opportunity to do that. And, and in practical terms, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of reflection uh, around any learning and using things like uh, my diary, where I regularly sort of write down at the start of each day what I'm grateful for, what I'm going to be focusing on, and then reflecting back on the day at the end of the day. I, I will do that quite regularly. And, and certainly one of the things that I was a big you know, proponent of when I was building out our company culture was that at the end of each week, the team give other team members what we call shout outs to sort of celebrate and appreciate them. Um, th those are just kind of a couple of practical examples that, that you know, I use. Uh, do you have anything else that, you know, for me as like a leader, I, I should be kind of doing or, or that could, uh, you know, improve team well-being or mindfulness or how we sort of appreciate others other than those sort of examples I've just given? Well, I think one could possibly be that having, because a lot, what a lot of organizations are doing is they're having regular, maybe weekly or monthly mindfulness sessions for their companies and their employees. Like I've been doing a lot of, like for some of the larger companies like Kellogg and others, where I do one speech and then they have me do like a monthly virtual call and I can spend time with about 300, 400 people join in. And they do a mindfulness practice with me. I, 30 minutes where I do a short talk, I do some mindfulness practice and a Q&A. 
So maybe that's something that could be implemented for maybe once a month or every two weeks. You get together during company time so they understand that, hey, this is valuable and look, we're using company time. It's not like I have to do this when I get home, which was nice if you could do that when you get home. But you're like, no, this is part of work and I'm facilitating this well-being time during the workday for all of us to come together once a month or every couple of weeks. We take 20 minutes and we just do some mindfulness practice, which could be breathing exercises, focusing exercises. It could also just be talking about gratitude, just spending some quality personal time with our colleagues, get to know their human side. And so that's, I think, one thing uh, that can be done where maybe you're already doing that. Um, but I think that's one thing that could be done is during company time, just taking time out for some well-being and doing it together. And which is, I think could be a powerful thing. I mean, that, that's a great tip. Um, we, we use quite a bit of, sort of asynchronous or pre-recorded mindfulness, but I think the live sessions are really, really powerful. And, and as you say, bringing people together uh, it is one of those things where you can acknowledge other people. And it's really sort of a team bonding exercise as well, which I think is just a great suggestion, a great piece of advice. Um, one of the, the topics that I've sort of touched on uh, and that I'm, I'm almost a little bit overly obsessed with is um, you know, how I do my own mindfulness. And I tend to do it sort of in the morning, a sort of meditation session. And then I'll also try and do a little bit in terms of my wind down routine and sleep. Um, now, now that sort of always sets me up for the day and that's worked quite well for me personally. One of my big things I'm really sort of into as well is, is sleep and getting sufficient sleep to then be able to operate the following day. I, I know that you sort of touch on sleep and, and combine that with mindfulness and the mind. What are some of your top tips around there and, and how do you think, you know, sleep has been detrimentally affected during things like the pandemic period um, and with people having sort of racing minds in, in today's business settings? Yeah, you know, there's a research from John Hopkins Medicine that I share in my talks that how a lack of sleep can affect our mood and memory, health and our judgment. <laughs> what else is there besides those what do you lose those for us you're out you're gone you might as well go to sleep after that if you have no mood, your mood memory health and your judgment like you know, how can you work with those things uh being deficient right and it also shows that when we are sleep deprived our body starts craving sweet salty and starchy foods because it needs a quick pickup of energy and when we start doing that it increases our chances of developing obesity and cancer by almost 45 percent and increases our chances of developing dementia by 33%. And unfortunately, in the corporate environment, at least in the U.S., people like to brag about the fact that they didn't get enough sleep last night. Somehow it makes them look like they're tougher, more committed or something. But it's actually you're just giving yourself more. You're, you're preparing yourself for dementia and obesity and heart disease and cancer. <laughs> That's what we're doing. So one of the things that, uh, you know, so I tell people, like, if you hear somebody uh, bragging about sleep, just know that that's what they're really bragging about. That, hey, guys, I'm about to give myself dementia. Uh, we're not patting you on the back for that, actually. We're not. And so some of the things I do encourage is that make sure that you're cutting yourself off from work at a certain time, especially if you're working from home, because then all the boundaries are blurred right now. When when do you work? When do you stop? You shouldn't just be working all the time. So set up a thing, put up post-it notes, start at eight, whatever your time is, cut off at six, whatever your time's up, put it there and be strict with that. Turn off your machines, your work-related machines and put them in a different room and put, fully power them down. So it takes you time to, so you won't be tempted to go back in there, quickly send another email, right? Another thing is don't send emails from bed. Strong one that I emphasize. 
especially for those really, you know, high driven, highly motivated individuals sitting in bed, sending 25 emails. And now you want to put your laptop away and think you're going to actually go to sleep. You just got revved your mind up. It's like putting the pedal to the metal. And now you're expecting your car when you shut it down, that it's just going to be cool right away. You touch the hood. It's still hot. Well, you got to give it a half hour, an hour for the thing to cool down. That's where the fan's blowing now. So you've pumped up, you know, you've put the pedal to the metal. And now you're going to close it and put your blanket on and now you're going to go to sleep. Forget it. It's impossible. You're still going to be looking, you're going to reviewing every single email that you did. So we need a good few hours to wind down before we can actually sleep. And also I encourage people not to have, you know, like on our devices, we have this, like this blue light, right? Which makes it, it makes it look attractive. It's easy to see everything, but the blue light also interferes with the body's ability to produce melatonin, the sleep hormone. And so making sure that we don't use the blue light, there's a setting on the phones where you can set it to a dimmer yellow light in the evenings and it can automatically turn back onto the blue. So like I have mine set at like 9 p.m. The blue light turns off, it goes to a dimmer yellow and at 6 a.m. it turns back on to like the regular blue, something like that. So do something like that so that these little, we can do a lot of little things to improve our sleep and then also dimming the lights in our room so our body's circadian rhythm knows that it's about to go to sleep. It's, it's nighttime. It's not like bright and day and it needs to be active. You know, drinking some like chamomile tea. I like that personally. Some soft music, reading a book. We have to find a couple of activities that help cool our engine down. You know, it slows down. It closes out the apps. So that and then what you do is, you know, when you maybe get in bed, do some breathing exercises to finally just really shut everything down and be able to go to sleep. So we do need to plan our sleep. Like we plan our work day, like at the beginning of the work day, we need to tell ourselves that, you know, I want to sleep by 11. By seven o'clock, I'm going to shut this down. And then between seven and 11, I'm going to do these three activities that calm me down. We do need to any, it's like taking a road trip without a plan of where you're going. You, you'll get somewhere, but you don't know where. So I think anything with a plan is going to be much more successful and we'll, we'll, we'll achieve the goal that we want. So we do need to plan our sleeping, our eating, our relationships, our work performance. Things do need, doesn't have to be elaborate. Just a couple thoughts in your mind. Okay, that's what I'm going to do today. Quickly jot them down because when you jot it down, there's a better chance to follow through on it. I think having that wind down routine, certainly for me, is one of the things that boosted my energy levels and my product productivity during the day the most, actually. And I'm I'm all here for chamomile tea. That's one of the things that I take just before I, I go to bed as well and try and block out that time before I, I get my head on my pillow. Um, so that that's fantastic advice. Um, but Panet, just as we start to wind down, um, we always ask everyone at the end of uh, recording, who their human performance hero is, who's inspired them on their own journey. So I'd be really interested to hear who's your, who yours is. So mine's not so well-known. I mean, there are many well-known heroes out there. For me, um, it's, it was this monk uh, who I was living in the monastery within Mumbai. And he was incredible. He was the head monk of the, of the monastery. And what I always saw, what he was doing is when I first went there, I saw him cleaning floors and I, I didn't know that he was the leader of the, the monastery. I thought maybe he was like one of the newer guys because he's cleaning the floors. <laughs> and then later, I, the next few days later, a few days later, I saw him giving a lecture and I was like, whoa, he's a powerful speaker. And then I learned that he was the head monk. And I was like, oh, what he was cleaning. Then I saw him cooking the next day. And then what I really, that was, 
I still can't forget that. It was like 30 years ago. And I'm like, wow, he's made such a powerful impression that a leader, that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to do everything that they ask everyone else to do. And I, and I noticed how everybody there kind of loved him. Whenever he would ask someone to help, you could see there was like an eagerness and excitement in their response to help him. Like when was the last time when somebody was eager to help their boss or something, right? But I could see he had actually captured their heart because he, he would also, not every day, but he would cook for them. He would cook with such joy and feed them. I'm like, my God, I fell in love with the guy. I'm like, oh my God, this is like, you know, this is incredible. This is, who is this guy? I haven't seen somebody like this. So, and I'm still in touch with him. Uh, he's still like a mentor to me. He's incredible. So he was 30 years ago and still is. Uh, very much leads by example. And incredible example of humility. And it's just a phenomenal, he just loves to help other people grow. Just loves, and if they grow more than him, he's even happier. Which is very rare to see a person like this on the earth, walking the earth. And I'm fortunate, I feel, and I'm glad. Somehow I came across this type of an individual. That every time I tell him about one of my successes, he's so happy. And I'm like, wow, you know, there's no jealousy, there's no envy. He's just happy when others are succeeding. So, yeah, I'm, I'm super grateful uh, that I came across someone like that. It's an amazing example and, and a really good um, highlight of, you know, the leadership skills of, of humility and leading by example. And I think it's something that, you know, lots more leaders need to be able to sort of integrate into their, their leading style because it does get the best out of people. And it's, uh, you know, that's a fantastic example. Um, well, Vanna, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. And, and we've covered some really, really important topics. Obviously, we haven't had time to cover every single thing that you talk about or all of your books. But if people do want to get in touch with you or, or look uh, for some of the things you've got coming up, um, where can they go to find out a little bit more? Well, I think two places are best. One is my website. It has sort of like my little bit of my story. My books are on there. My workshops that I speak on are there. It's Pandit Dasa, just like my name, P-A-N-D-I-T-D-A-S-A.com. Right. So there you can get everything about me. You want to get in touch with me as a form people can fill out. And then if people want to be connected with me through social media, LinkedIn and Instagram, I post on there every single day. I'm very active, mostly on LinkedIn. And so if somebody wants to reach out to me from there as well, I'm posting positive messages, quotes, videos, tips, literally every single day on LinkedIn. So that's one way to just kind of follow me and stay in touch. And if you ever have a question, you're welcome to reach out to me through that platform. Fantastic. Well, Pan, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you and I uh, wish you all the best success uh, in the future. And um, thank you so much for all of your insights around all the topics we've covered today.